This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Smithing The heat of the smith's workshop is stifling, and the thick fumes are already making your head spin. The open front does little to help. The workshop is dominated by a massive stove and bellows. A shirtless apprentice is feverishly pumping the bellows as the grizzled smith in a thick leather apron berates him. Faster, boy! We ain't just making hoops for the cooper today. The Lord needs a dozen swords for his men, and if you don't stoke the fire hot enough, they'll shatter. And then the Lord will shatter me, and I'll make sure I shatter you if I have to claw my way out of the grave to do it. If fantasy video games have taught us anything, it's that there are only three businesses in every town. The weapon shop, the armor shop, and the potion shop. That's it. And while that greatly simplifies Yelp searches in Gaia, Tamriel, Thetis, Cocoon, Spira, Middle-earth, and Azeroth, you probably realize that that's not entirely accurate. And that's why, in the worlds of Ferun, the Nintir Valley, Orth, Athos, Galerion, Thetis again, and Spelljammerland? In the worlds of fantasy tabletop role-playing games, we know that there are usually half a dozen shops in every town and city. There's a general store, a baker, a butcher, a tailor, an alchemist, and a blacksmith. If the GM is really knowledgeable, they add a tanner because the blacksmith can't make leather armor. But tanning is a topic for another time. Let's talk about the blacksmith and how a chunk of rock becomes a great sword. To begin with, a blacksmith was a blacksmith because he worked with black metal. That is to say, iron, and later its cousin, steel. There were other smiths as well. Silversmiths, tinsmiths, goldsmiths, and others worked with the so-called white metals. And, as metalworking became more complicated, a number of specialties emerged. For example, a blacksmith who specialized in making knives and swords would be called a bladesmith. Often, bladesmiths also had some skill in woodworking and leatherworking so they could make handles and sheaths for their weapons. But the history of metalworking doesn't begin with swords, and it doesn't begin with iron, and it doesn't even start with smithing. It starts with copper. See, copper has a few properties that make it really useful about 10,000 years ago when humanity decided they had gone as far as they could with sharpened rocks. First of all, copper is malleable and ductile. I'm not just showing off my vocabulary with complicated adjectives there. Those two words come from chemistry and they refer to a material's plasticity which is just a way of saying how the material deforms under different types of stresses, such as tensile or compressive stresses. Okay, maybe I am showing off my vocabulary just a little bit. Plasticity is the ability of a material to deform rather than to break. Play-Doh 
is highly plastic because you can mold it into all sorts of interesting shapes. It doesn't shatter or break apart. It just smushes, right? Compare that to, say, brick. If you hit a brick really hard, it just shatters. A malleable material is one that can withstand being crushed or beaten with a hammer. If you beat copper with a hammer, it flattens out into a thin sheet. It doesn't break. And a ductile material is one that can be stretched out. So if you roll copper like you're making a Play-Doh snake, it'll stretch out into a, well, into a copper snake. Those two properties, which don't always come together, mind you, made copper super useful. You could beat it and pound it and squash it into all sorts of shapes. You could add a sharp edge or a sharp point even. But the best part about copper is that pure copper occurs naturally and is pretty easy to find. So copper was the next best thing to rocks when making tools and weapons. By the by, the name copper comes from the Latin Aes Cyprium, which means Metal of Cyprus. The word morphed into cuprum, which is why the chemical symbol for copper is Cu, and later it became copper. But what made copper so amazingly useful also caused a bit of a problem. Copper was soft, and it didn't suddenly stop being soft just because you made a shape you particularly liked. So it didn't hold an edge or a point particularly well and it could be deformed or bent. But fortunately, in ancient Iran, someone discovered something even better. Around 5000 BCE, on the Iranian plateau, someone invented arsenical bronze. And the thing is, we're not entirely sure how anyone figured out this particular trick. What is arsenical bronze? Well, it's a type of bronze, obviously. And what is bronze? Bronze is an alloy. And what is an alloy? An alloy is a mixture of two or more different metals that has different properties from the metals themselves. Somehow, some copper got mixed with arsenic. And when I say mixed, you have to understand that you don't mix metals by sprinkling one on the other. You mix them chemically, either by heating the metals together and letting them mix, or by using various chemical reactions. However it happened that first time, the Iranians were smart enough to realize that they had a real thing here in this arsenical bronze. It was stronger, but it was also easy to work as long as you heated it up. That is to say, if you beat it into a shape while it was hot, then cooled it off, it would hold that shape better, or point, or edge. It also had a much prettier metallic sheen. So yeah, arsenical bronze was all the rage. And eventually, there's evidence the folks who invented it, or stumbled upon it, learned how to make it on purpose. But around 4000 BCE, in various places that included China, Mesopotamia, Serbia, and Northern Africa, a new type of bronze emerged. Instead of arsenic, this bronze mixed tin 
and copper, and it worked even better. Bronze was so awesome that it ended the Calcolithic Age and started the Bronze Age. You know it had to be good if it had an age named after it. And I'll bet you know where this story is going, right? Because once we start talking about various lithic ages and then the Bronze Age, you know what comes next. That's right, kiddos. The Iron Age. The thing is, we're not sure how old ironworking is. The problem with iron is that it corrodes, it rusts. So iron artifacts just don't last as long as their bronze counterparts. That said, we do have some iron artifacts that date back to about 3500 BCE, and those came from Egypt. Actually, first, they came from outer space. See, iron is hard to come by. Unlike copper, iron doesn't occur purely in nature very often. And honestly, you don't want the pure stuff anyway. Pure iron isn't that great. Iron draws a lot of strength from impurities, especially copper. Otherwise, it tends to shatter. So the trick is not just finding iron. It's finding iron with the right mix of other chemicals. And iron reacts pretty readily with all sorts of other stuff. So although you can find iron ore, finding the right ore is tricky. That's why the first iron came from meteors, rocks from outer space. We tend to think of meteors as these gigantic rocks from space that kill all of the dinosaurs on Earth unless Bruce Willis blows them up with nuclear weapons. But actually, around 85,000 meteors hit the ground every year. Most of them are just very, very small. And most of them contain iron. So, the Egyptians gathered up iron from meteors and used it to make stuff, as did the Indians and the Mesopotamians. In fact, early Mesopotamian armies were sometimes armed with meteoric iron weapons, which were durable and sharp and had an unfortunate tendency to sometimes shatter in combat. But meteoric iron wasn't that common and it was easier and cheaper to just use bronze. It wasn't until we discovered the idea of smelting that we could actually get a hold of serious iron. What is smelting? Smelting is the process of extracting metals from ore. See, rocks are a big complicated jumble of all sorts of metals and minerals and mishmash, all mixed together by heat and pressure and all sorts of chemical processes. But if you take a rock that has the stuff you want in it, like iron and some carbon, and you heat it up, you'll drive off a bunch of the stuff you don't want. And then, if you add something that chemically sticks to the other stuff you don't want, and get rid of that, what you're left with is what you do want. That is smelting. Smelting iron requires two things. 
a whole hell of a lot of heat, and a chemical flux. The heat drives off most of the garbage while also getting some carbon stuck in the iron. The flux sticks to the rest of the garbage, and what is left is iron. The first people to figure out the process of smelting iron were the Hittites of Syria, and they seem to have nailed it down around 1200 BCE. Thereafter, iron smelting spread through the Middle East, into Greece, and into Northern Africa. It seems to have taken a long time to hit China, though. They didn't start smelting until about 500 BCE, and thus began the Iron Age. Except the Iron Age didn't really catch on so much. Well, I mean, iron was great, and it had its advantages. But it also tended to rust and corrode, and sometimes to shatter. And it was harder to get hold of iron, what with all that smelting. What really brought iron to the forefront was disruption of the tin trade. When tin became harder to find in Europe, iron caught on. You can see the difference by comparing the approximate iron production in China and Rome in around 1000 BCE. Although they had similar populations, the Roman Empire produced 85,000 tons of iron, while China, under the Han Dynasty, produced only 5,000 tons. Meanwhile, in western Iran and India, 500 BCE to 500 CE, smelting was getting better and better. These places had developed bloomeries, which are just fireproof ovens with channels and pipes used to smelt iron. That allowed them greater and greater control over the temperature and allowed them to refine the process of smelting to such a degree that they could control how much carbon and oxygen could get at the iron. In so doing, they developed steel. The most famous ancient steels were called Wootz steel and Damascus steel. Steel is basically just super iron. It has a very precise amount of carbon mixed into it. That makes it very strong and very resistant to corrosion. But once you have your iron or steel, how do you get a sword out of that? Well, that happens in a forge. Forge is one of those words that means two different things. First of all, a forge is a workshop where a blacksmith makes things. Second, the forge is actually the big brick oven in which the metal is heated. But surprisingly, not all forges were that big. There were actually portable forges that could be moved around on the back of a wagon so that blacksmiths could take their workshop with them. The most important item in the forge was the bellows. The bellows is an accordion-like device that blows air into the forge and thus allows the smith to control the temperature. See, the trick with working iron and making steel is controlling the temperature very precisely and actually getting the temperature high enough to soften the iron. Before the bellows was invented, apprentices had to blow into the forge continuously and laboriously through hollow tubes in its side. The process of smithing is pretty complicated, and it all relies on precise temperatures. 
the blacksmith could tell the temperature by the color of the iron or steel. So as the blacksmith used a variety of tools, hammers and chisels and punches and swages and fullers and things, to shape the metal, he had to keep reheating and quenching it in either salt water or oil to maintain the right temperature, to fix the shape, and to maintain the proper carbon content. Blacksmiths made a lot of different things. A village blacksmith would make tools for farmers or other craftsmen, household objects like pots and fireplace pokers, nails, horseshoes, hoops for barrels, chains, hinges for doors, and the occasional decorative item. Castle blacksmiths were charged with arming and armoring the lords, knights, and various men-at-arms. They spent a lot of their time making arrowheads, weapons, and armor. Many monks at monasteries and abbeys were smiths, as those places generally had to be self-sufficient. And many armies traveled with smiths. It's also interesting to note that blacksmiths made locks and keys. And often, they used molds to make keys. Think how valuable one of those molds might be to the right or wrong person. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by the Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and madadventurers.com.